Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Caitlin Tan. If you think about one dish that sustained generations of Appalachian people, what comes to mind? Beans and cornbread is probably what made it possible for people to live in this state. So beans and cornbread is like all the amino acids that your body needs. So it's basically like the nutritionally perfect food. And there's a new board game based on West Virginia foods and local monsters. Mothman, I think, is maybe people's favorite card in the game. And we talk with a longtime bear photographer. I've known happy bears. I've known melancholy bears. I've known playful bears. By being a photographer and literally spending thousands of hours in the woods, you just come to realize how different every bear is. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. And I'm Mason Adams. I live in an agricultural wonderland here in Floyd County, Virginia. I grow some of my own food, and much more comes from the farmers just a few miles up from me on the Blue Ridge Parkway. But despite all the veggies and eggs and fruit we get, sometimes there's just no substitute for a personal favorite. A simple bowl of soup beans and a slice of cornbread. And I'm not the only one. You take all the bad ones out. Our Folkways reporter, Zach Harold is on the show with us today. So what are, what are we hearing right now? That is my grandmother, Evelyn Adkins, sitting at her kitchen table. She's dumping a bag of pinto beans right onto the floral tablecloth. And she's going through them one by one so she can get ready for our weekly Monday night uh, pinto bean dinner. Like sometimes you find a rock in them. And I always pick out the halves, too, because... They don't cook pretty. So you're telling me you guys do this every week? Every Monday night for as long as I have been alive. I think a lot of people in our region can probably relate to that kind of tradition. As a matter of fact, I I know a lot of people in our region can relate to that. Because last year I got on Twitter and asked folks to tell me about a food their mamas made that was uniquely Appalachian. And so many people told me about their granny's beans and cornbread. But, like, I'd never thought about beans and cornbread as an Appalachia-specific thing. I mean, you can get them anywhere. Anywhere there's a, a Cracker Barrel or a Bob Evans. And yet it was clear that lots of people from Appalachia identified this meal with home. So that made me start wondering, how did it get to be this way? And I, of course, had no idea where to find the answer. So I just started contacting people who had replied to that tweet. And that's how I ended up on the phone with John Porter. It's really just one of those things that makes me think of home. And it's I think it's you know something that just makes me think of, of West Virginia. Lucky for me, this guy knows his beans. So I am the Urban Agriculture Program Coordinator for Nebraska Extension. Nebraska is the number three producer of dry beans in the country. I would say most of our most of the pinto beans that are eaten in West Virginia are grown in either Nebraska, South Dakota, or North Dakota. John lives in Nebraska now, but he grew up in Wayne County, West Virginia. My dad, uh, his family was, was really poor. The way he put it was we had uh, beans and taters for dinner. And taters and beans for supper. Beans and cornbread is probably what made it possible for people to live in this state. Like beans and corn together. So beans and cornbread is like all the amino acids that you, your body needs. So it's basically like the nutritionally perfect food. I like that. Nutritionally perfect food. Zach, how do you think they figured that out? Oh, this is something Native Americans figured out long before white people showed up. Throughout North America, tribes were practicing what's known as three sisters farming, where you co-plant beans, corn, and squash. If you're if you're thinking about like a traditional kind of cornfield, what you would imagine a cornfield looking like, imagine that with beans and squash worked into it. That that was at the scale that it was practiced at by uh, the historic Cherokee Nation. That's David Anderson in North Carolina. 
I'm the horticulture operations supervisor for the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. Now, these weren't pinto beans, mind you. Those originated in South America. The Cherokee and other Native people had their own varieties of dried beans that they'd raise every season. They'd also raise corn and grind that into meal. So really, a pot of soup beans and some cornbread has been a go-to dinner in these mountains for as long as people have lived here. So if pinto beans weren't being grown in Appalachia, how did they get to become such a staple? Well, it's hard to pinpoint exactly when pinto beans show up, but it was probably somewhere around the turn of the 20th century. Advances in transportation made it super easy to grow these beans in the Midwest and ship them all over the country. And Appalachian folk, frugal as always, realized it was way cheaper to buy the beans in bulk rather than grow their own. That's what happened in John Porter's family. I think my grandmother would, they would buy like 25 and 50 pound bags of pinto beans because they were so cheap. And that's what happened in my family. My mom bought them in 25 uh, pound sacks. And it probably lasts us a week, maybe. <laughs> my mama Ev's mother, her name was Memory had eight kids and a husband to feed and not a lot of money to do it with. Back then, we had beans and taters or taters and beans. That's about all we had to eat, gravy and biscuits for breakfast. (laughs) And memory taught my mama how to make beans and taters and biscuits and gravy, too. See, memory was diagnosed with breast cancer when Mama F was about 11 years old. And that was a death sentence, more or less, in those days. So in the time she had left, memory taught Mama how to cook. It was partly a matter of survival. All of memory's other daughters had moved off and started families of their own, and Mama would be the woman of the house once her mom was gone. But I think it was also a matter of legacy. This was a poor family. Memory didn't have any family heirlooms she could hand down to her daughter. But she did have recipes. And they would be something that Mama could remember her by. So hold on a second. Does your grandmother still make beans the way that her mother taught her? Well, yes. This is something I did not realize until reporting this story. I have been eating my great-grandmother's pinto beans for my entire life. Mama Ev still makes them exactly the way her mom showed her. So I'm going to wash them. After she picks out all the rocks and the ugly beans, she rinses what's left and puts them in a crock pot with some water, a few slices of bacon, a little bacon grease, and some butter. I guess that's about what? Two tablespoons of butter, maybe? I never measure anything. And the pot's ready to boil. And the next evening, yeah, she cooks them all night and most of the next day. We gather at her house for dinner. Boy, you want to see some beans? How, how are they looking? They're looking good. They're ready to eat. Look at that. It's me, my wife Whitney, our daughter Sadie, my mom and dad, and my sister Jenna. It's the same guest list every week. This is also part of the nostalgia that beans and cornbread evoke, right? It's not just the food. It's the ritual surrounding it, the people we share that ritual with. If history or economics or necessity had worked out any other way, my family might gather around the table every week for a big helping of, I don't know, spaghetti and meatballs. But for us and so many other families, it's pinto beans and cornbread. Here it goes. I'm just getting a little bit. Now, my sister Jenna doesn't usually eat soup beans. She says it's a texture thing. But she was there when I interviewed Mama, and she heard all the history behind these beans that she's been turning her nose up to all these years. So this night, she decided she would give them another shot. I don't know why I thought these were disgusting when I was a kid. I don't know. Because they're not. They're They're good. And you're not just saying that because I've got a microphone stuck in your face. No, I'm not joking. Because I was prepared to come here and for you to try them and still not like them, and then that was how the story was going to end. I'm not, I'm serious. I'm sorry to spoil your ending, but I actually like them. Beans are so good. You're just trying to get on the radio. (laughs) 
Inside Appalachia, I'm Zach Harrell. Beans and Conrad had a fight. Beans knocked Conrad out of sight. Conrad said, now that's all right. Meet me on the corner tomorrow night. As Zach just told us, even though pinto beans aren't native to Appalachia, they've become a staple in many of the region's food traditions. One woman in Moorfield, West Virginia, makes pinto beans in her restaurant, but she didn't grow up eating them in her home country of Honduras. For six years, Emerita Sorto has been serving up traditional Honduran and Salvadoran food at her restaurant, Pupusaria Emerita. The menu includes bean-filled dishes like paleadas and pupusas. Folkways reporter Nicole Musgrave recently called up the restaurant and spoke with Emerita and her teenage daughter, Vanessa Romero, about the kinds of beans they serve. This is Emerita Sorto. Emerita grew up in Honduras and primarily speaks Spanish. Her granddaughter, Vanessa Romero, was on the call to translate for her grandmother. I mostly use pinto beans with most of my plates. I also use red beans. Emerita moved to the United States when she was 30 and has lived here about 30 years. She says in Honduras, she grew up eating beans with most every meal, primarily red beans and black beans. But pinto beans weren't as common. However, they're the main beans she uses at the restaurant, and I wanted to know why. Emerita, you said that you grew up eating red beans and black beans a lot, but I'm curious, why do you use pinto beans at the restaurant? The majority of my customers are American, though we usually use pinto beans in our plates. A lot of Latinos are used to eating red beans, but I think both enjoy all sorts of beans. Emerita says she serves pinto beans two ways, as whole beans and as mashed, refried beans. In both varieties, she adds ingredients like garlic, onion, salt, tomatoes, and green bell peppers to give the beans more flavor. And how did you learn to make the beans like that? Is that um, a recipe that you learned growing up in Honduras? Sí, desde pequeña que yo estaba aprendí a hacer esos frijoles así. Este, mi madre me los enseñó a hacer. Entonces, por eso yo ya cuando vine aquí, pues ya... My mother taught me when I was when I was a little girl, and when I came to the United States, I decided to use other beans with the same recipe. And now, Emerita teaches others to cook. She's taught family members as well as people at the church she attends. Even Vanessa is learning to cook. Vanessa says she knows how to make fried plantains but there's some recipes she hasn't learned yet. And I forgot to ask you, how do you refer to your grandmother? I call my grandmother abuela. And uh, have you learned your abuela's bean recipe? No, but my mother has. Okay, so maybe one day. <laughs> yeah, maybe one day. <laughs> Even though she doesn't cook them yet, Vanessa says she does enjoy eating the beans her abuela makes. Her favorite way to eat them is on a balayada, a traditional Honduran dish where refried beans are spread onto a large flour tortilla and usually topped with crema and crumbled cheese. I think my grandmother's food is very authentic. Vanessa lives an hour east of Moorfield in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley. But she enjoys spending time with Emerita in her restaurant, and she says she's glad to share Honduran food with Moorfield's longtime residents and with the many immigrant families who've migrated to the town to work at the local poultry factory. And what is it like for you to share this aspect of your culture with people in Moorfield? Well, I grew up here in America, but I grew up with Honduran culture. And I think not a lot of people talk about Honduras and their culture and their food. So I like seeing people coming here and eat the food that we grew up eating. And 
I hope everyone can come by and enjoy some Honduran food. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Nicole Musgrave. Those two stories from Nicole and Zach are part of our Folkways reporting project. Our team of reporters sends us stories about arts and culture from all across the region. Up next, we'll hear about a hemp business in West Virginia that's run by three generations of West Virginia women. It's a bit of a craft industry. That's what I see as West Virginian. It's not this corporate I don't know, machine-driven business. They all have their hands in it. That story and more after the break. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Caitlin Tan. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Moonflower is a hemp business run by three generations of Appalachian women in West Virginia. Riley and Macy Queen, the two daughters, Jamie, the mother, and Laura Queen, the grandmother. They produce and sell all of their products. They're in their third growing season, and so far are seeing a lot of success. Although medical marijuana is now legal in West Virginia, it's been a slow four-year process. So the Queens focus their business on CBD and Delta-8 products both legal for recreational use in West Virginia. CBD is a chemical found in marijuana, but hemp products contain almost no THC, which is what gets you high. Delta-8 is a type of THC, but it's different from marijuana. People say it creates a milder high. Photographer Rebecca Kiger and reporter Molly Bourne put together a story for the Washington Post on Moonflower. I spoke with them about it. Here's Bourne talking about Delta-8. Here, you will find it on shelves in the forms of edibles, tinctures, balms, tea. They just made honey at Moonflower recently with Delta 8 in it. So it has been a product that observers in West Virginia have said people were turning to to get you know relief from pain if they might have used marijuana but couldn't do so legally here. They were turning to products like Delta 8 for a similar high. And that's how Moonflower has kind of become so successful, right? I think that's the story in part. I think they have an interesting approach in that they understood these products were something people wanted to buy. CBD is everywhere right now, and they do quite well with CBD too. But they've benefited both from the fact that people want these products, but also from you know their uh, unique expertise. So I think they, they each brought something distinctive to the company, and they've grown 400% since they first opened, they told me, and things seem to be taking off uh, even more in 2022. And Rebecca, I'm curious, what was that like photographing multiple generations of West Virginia women running this modern company? I was excited to learn about a company uh, run by three generations And I think what impressed me first and foremost is that Riley and Macy are young. The fact that they were starting a business while in college and at the same time beginning to develop and cultivate this gorgeous farm and piece of land that their father had purchased That's a lot of work, and it takes an incredible amount of passion. And to really make it work, you have three generations willing to bring their unique talents and meld that together to create something special. And Molly, I want to just take a step back. You mentioned they've had 400% growth since they first opened in 2019. And 
something you mentioned in the article is that a lot of businesses have struggled during the pandemic and Moonflower has been okay. Can you kind of speak to that? I mean, they have sold to customers in every state. That seems pretty significant. Yeah. And I think that bond is one reason they've weathered the pandemic so well. You know, I think any industry that's thriving in West Virginia is newsworthy. And I think that they've managed to tap into those unique talents they have. They saw this market growing in West Virginia. And Rebecca, as you mentioned, you know, the multi-generation females running this business on land that their father had bought. And they obviously have other farm operations going on. I mean, do you think there's something uniquely West Virginian about this business that that makes it special? For one, they have a love for what they're doing. They really believe in what they're doing. They do it with such care and pride. And it's a bit of a craft industry. That's what I see as West Virginian. It's not this corporate, I don't know, machine-driven business. They all have their hands in it. You know, it's a group of friends and people in the community that all come and work together. It, it's like a family. Molly, now I'm curious, is there at all a stigma attached to running a hemp or marijuana business as marijuana isn't decriminalized on a federal level? Yeah, it depends on who you ask. With Delta 8, some states have have banned it, including our neighbor, Kentucky. And I mentioned this in the story, but, you know, the Agriculture Department in West Virginia itself has, like, taken a neutral stance on this. And uh, I think that's telling, right? And also... We know that there's a lot of possibilities for hemp, right? I think that some of the stigma, at least around hemp, is is going away. And it'll be interesting to see how the public views marijuana in the coming years now, especially with the fact that medical marijuana has taken off here. One thing I wanted to note, too, Rebecca said this so elegantly, but, you know, I think... The craft element of Moonflower is so important, and I would just say that is offers such a nice contrast to the sort of like anonymous companies that are making these products elsewhere, right? Like if you go into a gas station someplace and you see a CBD product or a Delta 8 product, you might not know where that product came from or the way it was produced. And, and I know that Moonflower is really emphasized. They want people to ask questions and they want people to understand what they're putting in their bodies. And they encourage that kind of conversation and want to place their items in retail stores that will take the time to have those conversations with customers. That was reporter Molly Bourne and photographer Rebecca Kiger speaking with me. We've posted a link to their article on our website, wvpublic.org. Carla Gover is an Appalachian musician, dancer, and activist. In the early days of the pandemic, her string band had to cancel its tour of Wales, Ireland, Serbia, and Mexico. So Gover was inspired to find a new way to share her work. Arts reporter Sherry Lawson tells us what the Eastern Kentucky native learned when she started teaching flat-footing and clogging online. Carla Gover is warming up to teach a live online class where she combines clogging and flatfooting. For 30 years, she's taught this form of dance at festivals or in six-week sessions at a studio. But on this Tuesday, she's set up in a room at her Lexington home. Her cousin, Art Mize, accompanies her with his fiddle. Depending on what day it is, Gover might be involved as artistic director for a play, recording a podcast, teaching dance, or playing the banjo. Whatever the modality of the day happens to be, the theme remains the same, a love of her culture. Everywhere in the world people have problems, but in Appalachia there tends to be a narrative where we get defined by our problems. And so I try to present the beauty and the dignity and the 
amazing parts of my culture as kind of a counterpoint to all of the misinformation that gets spread. An eighth-generation Kentuckian, Gover was born and raised in Letcher County. The award-winning musician usually travels the world with Corn Maze String Band. The band's concerts, canceled in 2020 due to COVID, have been rescheduled for this year. Gover has stayed busy despite the pandemic. After being quoted in the New York Times about how artists were faring during the pandemic, Gover was invited by Grammy-winning singer-songwriter Janice Ian to record a cover of Ian's song, Better Times Will Come. So she asked me to do a cover version featuring Flatfooting, and it was a song that she had written during the pandemic to sort of give people hope. And she asked a variety of really amazing folk artists from around the world to cover her song. So I did a version with my son-in-law and my two daughters that has three-part harmony and banjo and flatfooting in it. The 50-year-old Gover also started an online Appalachian flatfooting and clogging academy. Initially, it was a creative way to keep working amid the pandemic. It's become an unexpected joy as she continues the classes with people around the globe, from Portland, Oregon to Australia. This community has kind of formed around the dance academy. It's kind of counter to what you think. You think, oh, it's online, it's going to be less connected, it's going to be more alienating. But in certain ways, I feel like I've been able to connect even more deeply online. And that's that was a real surprise for me. I've made some friendships that I believe are going to keep going for a long time during the pandemic via online teaching. And that's been a real beautiful silver lining. One of the people Gover connected with is Tracy Wright of Portland. Wright is a musician, but says she grew up in a family that didn't dance. I was what I consider sort of a non-dancer. When I was in high school, I was in a play, Any Get Your Gun, and I had to learn how to waltz. And, and that was like the one and only time I actually learned any kind of dancing. But pre-COVID, Wright was at a festival in Santa Barbara. She saw people clogging and was intrigued. She started searching for a place to learn, found Gover through social media, and started taking her classes about a year ago. And I liked the way, way that she did the presentation, where you could kind of watch it, and she had it zoomed in on her feet, and you could watch her do it, and I thought, this is something I could do. The 62-year-old admits it took her some time to catch on because she wasn't used to moving. But she practiced everywhere. Her favorite place to practice, the grocery store. I know this sounds really crazy, but I would go with my daughter and my daughter would take a ton of time just picking out like cheese. And I'd start going, oh, pity pat, pity pat, pity, pity, pity pat. And the music was playing because it's a grocery store. And I'm like going, pity pat, pity pat. And pretty soon I'm dancing. My daughter would turn around and go, really, mom? Really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. As a musician, Wright says she enjoys the idea of her feet becoming a percussive instrument. Carla Gover affirms that is definitely a thing. It's like jazz. I'm, I'm the percussionist, and this is a musical conversation I'm having. I consider myself, first and foremost, a musician, and I happen to make music with my feet. For Inside Appalachia in Lexington, Kentucky, I'm Sherry Lawson. COVID-19 case numbers are dropping as the Omicron surge passes and we head into spring. But researchers are continuing to study COVID's after effects. West Virginia researchers are taking a leading role in a study on long-haul COVID ailments. West Virginia Public Broadcasting health reporter June Leffler has more. In fall of 2020, Morgantown resident Heather Yates caught the coronavirus and soon after developed unexplainable ailments. Fatigue, poor digestion, brain fog, and migraines almost every day. Besides those debilitating headaches, um, I had a terrible, intense pain from the base of my skull all down along my spine. Extremely painful, couldn't sleep. These various symptoms are now associated with the after effects of COVID-19, known as long-haul COVID. 
Different studies say anywhere between 10 to 60 percent of people who caught COVID will experience post-infection symptoms. But outside of specialty clinics, doctors have difficulty treating and diagnosing these symptoms. Yates remembers going back and forth with several doctors. My tests would all come back negative and everything looked fine, but I was clearly not fine and I was, was really sick. The uncertainty doctors face can even lead them to dismiss long-haul patients like Yates. And I met with this older gentleman. It wasn't even five minutes, and he told me I needed to see a psychiatrist, not him. Yates has since found other doctors dedicated to figuring out her underlying issues, though it's no easy task. She's taking medications and therapies that ease her symptoms. But there's still so much that Yates and doctors don't know about long-haul COVID. Finding answers is why Yates is participating in a study on the topic. I would have signed anything if it meant finding a cure or a treatment to make this stop. Researchers from all over West Virginia are involved in a national study on long COVID. The National Institutes of Health is setting aside tens of millions of dollars to track 17,000 participants over the course of four years. West Virginia Clinical and Translational Science Institute is leading the study for 11 different states. Dr. Sally Hodder is with the Institute and is a principal investigator in the study. It was very clear pretty quickly that, you know, folks were having symptoms that persisted or were even new long after their acute infection had resolved. Hodder says the study hopes to determine how exactly the virus's effects are able to linger. There are three theories. One, that there are remnants of the virus that continue to cause problems. Two, that the virus creates antibodies that end up harming the patient. Or three, that the infection creates a source of inflammation. And I don't think that there's any reason to think it just has to be one. There may be, you know, all of those may be occurring or one. Modern medicine already treats viral infections and inflammation very differently. Hodder says knowing what the root cause of post-acute COVID could lead to the best possible treatments. Then hopefully it will serve as a platform to have clinical trials and start to uh, test whether some of the therapies that may address the cause of long COVID in fact work. Researchers are hoping to get the widest range of study participants, young, old, pregnant women, rural, urban, and all races. Even people who have never had COVID will be part of the study. Hodder says participants' experiences and blood samples will be made available to researchers across the globe for many years to come. The prestigious Mayo Clinic will carry these blood samples. So it's not just sending the samples to the Mayo Clinic and then only the Mayo Clinic investigators look at that. It's really to develop a national resource to really look at questions as they come up. After rebounding from the explosive Omicron surge, it's likely more COVID long haulers will be looking for their own answers. For Inside Appalachia, I'm June Leffler. Black bear populations across Appalachia have grown for decades and spiked in recent years. With the pandemic sending more people outdoors, there's also been a growing number of interactions with bears in places like the Great Smoky Mountains. Now, I grew up going to the Smokies every year. Some of my earliest memories are of seeing bears. I always love hearing bear stories. So I called up a guy who's got more of them than anyone I know. My name is Bill Lee. And I've been photographing wildlife since about 1975. Uh, But somewhere along the way, I fell in love with bears. And uh, black bears have been the primary subject that I've been photographing for for about 25 years now. I want to ask, because your Facebook page, you talk a lot about the individuals and you tell stories How did you gain that understanding, and how did it differ from your initial expectations? Biologists tend to look at populations. 
I start with the individual because every individual is different. Every bear has his or her own specific personality. Let's say you had three or four golden retrievers in your life. They all look alike, but if you've had them, you know that their personalities can vary so much. And it's the same way with bears. I've known happy bears. I've known melancholy bears. uh, I've known playful bears. By being a photographer and literally spending thousands of hours in the woods, you just come to realize how different every bear is. So if every bear is different, that means every bear life has value because there's not another bear like him or her. There was a a bear in Great Smoky Mountains National Park, and, and I called her Abrams Bear, and she was a little mother bear. I came across her one spring day in 2008, and she and her two male yearlings were resting at the base of a big tree. And off to the distance, I see a young male bear working his way, meandering through the woods, just, you know, just on a walk, looking for food. And he didn't see him. So I said to Abram's bear, I said, Mama, you better wake up. You're about to have company. Well, she nor the yearlings ever even opened their eyes. I mean, they knew I was there and and there was a trust there. I repeated the message about three times. The young bear was still coming. Well, he eventually stepped on a twig and that sound woke her up. And wow, (laughs) what a transformation. She immediately jumped up and went over and stood up against the tree and took on this ferocious posture and blew loudly and scared that little bear off. And I mean, he just took off. Again, he didn't mean any harm. He was just walking through the woods and she just let him know that he wasn't welcome. Well, you know, all of that behavior was interesting. But what surprised me the most was not a minute later, she laid down, rested her head up against the base of another tree, and was sound asleep in about a minute. And I thought, wow, that is so neat. I mean, it was like, to me, it was such an adrenaline rush seeing it all. And here she puts it behind her in 60 seconds and is back to sleep like nothing ever happened. We're talking here in mid-February, and the days are starting to get longer, and you know I think there's still some winter weather ahead of us, but we're starting to see a shift to spring. What should people know as we head into this spring season where bears are starting to emerge from hibernation? We need to realize that when a bear comes out of their winter sleep, they're going to be hungry. And unfortunately, early spring is a time when there's the least food. If you live in bear country, you need to make sure you remove all attractants. That would be garbage. You need to store garbage indoors or in a bear-proof container. You need to make sure you remove your, your bird feeders. If you have a barbecue grill out, you need to make sure that that gets put inside and is clean. Bears aren't going to come to the yard if there's not a reward. So we just want to make sure that we're not bringing bears in by the way we live. So it's it's some very minor adjustments. You know, if people do encounter a bear in their yard or in the on a hike, what should they know? What should they do when that happens? The first thing you want to do is just stop, don't run, and talk to them in a gentle, quiet tone. A bear can tell so much about your intentions through your tone of voice. Predators don't announce their presence. So it'll help put the bear to ease. One of the things that causes 
bear human interactions is oftentimes when we startle a bear. So if you're walking a trail in the in the Smokies, let's say, and you're in a thick rhododendron patch and you can't see five feet in front of you, you need to make your presence known because you don't want to startle a bear. You don't want to be on top of a bear before he or she knows it. I'd love for you to share some of your stories about some of the more memorable encounters you've had. I was photographing in the Smokies. I was in Cades Cove and there was a young bear up an oak tree and he was feeding on on acorns. And this had to be prior to the year 2000 when they still had cattle leases in Cades Cove. There were cows in there. So I was watching this, this bear and, and it was a thick, uh, the leaves and branches were thick. I didn't have a clear view. And the cows were behind me. After a few minutes, all of a sudden, that young bear came flying down that tree, hit the ground, and took off in the opposite direction towards a woods line that was nearby. Well, about that time, I heard something behind me. A whole entire herd of of cows came running towards the bear. The only problem was I was between the bear and the cows. So the cows were stampeding towards me, and I had nowhere to go. And all I could think of was, oh, wow, the headlines are going to be bear photographers killed by stampeding cows. What a terrible way to go. <laughs> so I, I just stood there, and fortunately, the cows just kind of parted when they got to me. And we're very close, but I wasn't, I wasn't hurt whatsoever. But that was definitely the closest call I ever had while photographing bears. We've been talking with bear photographer Bill Lee. You can find his photos, including images of Abrams Bear, that mama bear he told a story about, on our website at wvpublic.org. Mothman's been sighted again in West Virginia. You know Mothman, the human-sized creature who was allegedly seen by dozens of people in West Virginia in the 1960s. This time, Mothman was spotted in Morgantown. He's part of a new board game that features cryptids and West Virginia food. Folkways reporter Clara Hazlett has the story. So everyone has five cards, and the first thing you need to do is just make sure you have at least one dish in your hand. There are four of us sitting around a wooden table where a colorful board has been arranged. And as long as everyone has a dish. We're playing a game called Hungry for Humans. Then you will select one and place it above your monster board. It's my first time playing and I'm up against the two creators of the game, Jared Kaplan and Chris Kincaid. Mine was slightly hungrier than your all's. Um, I get to go up six. The odds are not in my favor. I'm gonna say you look hungry. And I'm going to make you eat that extra chunky milk. So then I have to go back? You go back one. What? (laughs) (laughs) But now... We're in Chris's home in Morgantown, West Virginia. His basement is a board gamer's paradise. A giant game cupboard lines the wall, and the table we're playing on has been designed specifically for the activity. Here's Jared. Us, as the players, we are the humans. We each have a monster friend who wants to eat humans, but... If you feed it enough good food, it'll satisfy its human hunger and it won't eat anybody. Good food like a sundae from Ellen's Ice Cream in Charleston or a burger from the farmer's daughter in Cape and Bridge. However, if you feed it too much too fast, it becomes too powerful and just explodes. If you feed it the wrong things, because there are some nasty foods in here, then it becomes hangry and it just gets mad at you and it will eat you. Well, we got a minus two. What is that one? This is toothpaste with an orange juice chaser. Ooh. Don't know if you've ever had a glass of orange Horrible. juice after brushing your teeth. Horrible. Maybe the worst. <laughs> yep. Jared says uh, they wanted the game to celebrate their home state and its local restaurants. I love food. So um, I just started thinking of uh, a game that involved food. Specifically food from West Virginia. Wouldn't it be cool if the biscuits and gravy were from Tudors? And then it was like, yeah. 
that would be cool. What if everything was from a West Virginia restaurant? And then it sort of built from there. Cryptids are another important part of the game. Mothman, I think, is maybe people's favorite card in the game. The Grafton Monster, Sheep Squatch, Mothman, and Flatwoods Monster are all special power cards that give you an extra edge on your competitors. In real life, cryptids are only rarely spotted, and it's the same in the game. What do you do? You hear that? The what? buzzing. No, the sheep squatch coming to scare <laughs> Jared out of the meal. Chris and Jared met several years ago in their hometown of Beckley. Chris says they bonded over their love for board games. We've played games with people from very different walks of life, from very different places, um, with very different belief structures, and it's great. Nobody cares about any of it. We're just there to rob the bank or, or rescue the princess. As a kid, Chris would play games with his dad and two younger brothers. It was always associated in my life with happiness and togetherness because we grew up uh, not super well off, so a board game was... About as much entertainment. We weren't going off to taking trips and vacations all the time. We played Uno till we ruined decks. Now Chris is a family doctor and a professor at West Virginia University. Honestly, board games are my escape. My career's pretty taxing, especially lately, um, as far as time-consuming and um, energy-consuming. And it's just, it is how I recharge my batteries. He's carried on the family game tradition with his own kids. Like even now, my kids have a board game shelf over there that's starting to rival mine. Jared works in marketing at the resort at Glade Springs in Daniels, and he has his own marketing business. He says he was never very good at video games, so he played board games instead. For someone, someone like me who has a ton of anxiety, I actually enjoy being around people more than you would probably think. That's what I love about board games is it brings people together. Jared says, for him, board games aren't just something he pulls out at the holidays. It's really the anchor right now for me that brings my friends together. Is like, hey, I'm going to have a game night, and people are excited about it and want to come over. At one of these game nights in Beckley several years ago, none of their other friends showed up, so it was just Chris and Jared. They didn't end up playing anything. But we just started talking about games, and I told Chris about an idea that I had for our first game. That was the start of their company, Lonely Hero Games. And after diving deeper into the world of board games, they quickly learned that a good game needs good artwork. If your art and your game is not good, you're going to hear about it. Morgantown artist Liz Pavlovic was the perfect fit for their second game, Hungry for Humans. She'd never illustrated a board game before, but she's known around the state for her funky renditions of West Virginia food like pepperoni rolls and cryptids like Mothman. I just really like celebrating the, um, I don't know, weird stuff in the state and the stuff that maybe people don't know about, especially if you're not from here. Today is Liz's first time playing the game, like me, but she seemed to be getting the hang of it. Okay, so I'm going to play the potluck card. Oh. <laughs> and add this. Okay. We have... So now you're trying to make someone explode. Yeah. No. That's <laughs> yeah, a seven. Liz's monster friend is none other than Flurbin Gusselpot, a peculiar creature, loosely inspired by a bat. It's her personal favorite. So he has like a really weird nose, and uh, otherwise I guess sort of like a reptile body with a horse tail um, and some fangs and like a really long tongue and really long fingers. And he's purple. He's purple with spots, orange spots. <laughs> when Hungry for Humans launched on Kickstarter last fall, they received an unexpected amount of support for the game, specifically from West Virginians. Sometimes I reflect on that and feel extremely lucky to be from West Virginia and have our community because if you're creating a game in somewhere like New York, it's like, well, everywhere you look, people are doing that. In West Virginia, though, people take a lot of pride, it seems, in people who are doing things that are different and unique, and they want to support each other and lift each other up. And then... You know, you kind of want to live up to that. Well, we better make it the best darn game we can and really mean it. Chris says he enjoys playing Hungry for Humans, but he rarely wins. And indeed, Chris's monster, Porgus Beanhammer, is the first one to explode. Don't blow me up. Blow him up, because I, I look hungry. That leaves me, Jared, and Liz. At this point, I'm rooting for all of you to join me in the grave. I'm 
<laughs> it's a seven, so it's going to be four each, which is going to blow. Whoa. Can I play yuck? We're all about to lose. Yes. Okay, yes. So okay. first do that. Okay, I'm going to play yuck on the three. Oh, man. Is Perfect. that good? Yeah. yeah. That yeah, means so you win. Once the means, yes, you win. I can't believe mm. that. Good use of the yuck <laughs> card. Yeah, if you, you almost played the yuck, yeah. we were They all may good. have let me win, but <laughs> I'd like to think otherwise. Chris and Jared's game, Hungry for Humans, will be available this summer. And even though it isn't even on the shelves yet, they already have ideas for more new games. I don't know how many he has. I have at least 15 <laughs> right now. If you take off these slats, there's a, a skeleton of a game under this table right now that I've been working on. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Clara Hazlett. We've got more stories from our Folkways project coming up on Inside Appalachia in the next few months. To make sure you don't miss any of them, Subscribe to the Inside Appalachia podcast. And leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That can help others find the show. Before we go, we're going to listen to a poem by Kentucky's Poet Laureate, Crystal Wilkinson. Wilkinson's new book of poetry, Perfect Black, was just awarded a 2022 Image Award for Outstanding Literary Work by the NAACP. Here she is reading one of the poems from the book, which is an ode to tobacco and her grandfather. Oh, tobacco. You are the warm, burnt sienna of my grandfather's skin, soft like ripe leather. I cannot see you any other way but as a farmer's finest crop. You are a Kentucky tiller's livelihood. You were school, clothes in August, the turkey at Thanksgiving, Christmas with all the trimmings. I close my eyes, see you tall, stately green, lined up in rows, See sweat seeping through Granddaddy's shirt as he fathered you first. You were protected by him, sometimes even more than any other thing that rooted in our earth. Just like family, you were coddled, cuddled, coaxed into making him proud. Spread out for miles, you were the only pretty thing he knew. When I think of you at the edge of winter, I see you brown, wrinkled, just like Granddaddy's skin. A 10-year-old me plays in the shadows of the stripping room. The wood stove burns. Calloused hands twist through the length of your leaves. Granddaddy smiles, nods at me when he thinks I'm not looking. And you, you are pretty and braided, lined up in rows like a room full of brown girls with skirts hooped out for dancing. That was Krista Wilkinson reading a poem called O Tobacco. It's featured in her book, Perfect Black, which was just named an outstanding literary work by the NAACP. Until next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Genova and Dinosaur Burps. Roxy Todd is our producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Alex Runyon is our associate producer. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to sign up for our newsletter. There you can also subscribe or download all of our stories or look for us wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.